You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful to be here to hear your life-giving word of pardon and assurance that we are yours. And we pray that in the weakness of our faith, you would continue to give us that very word tonight. Have mercy on us, Lord. Amen. So we'll be hearing from the prophet Isaiah this evening, and I invite you to keep your bulletins open because we're going to be looking at the text of Isaiah 43 on page 13 of your leaflets, and we'll try to pay close attention to what it's doing so that we can hear from the Lord. The mood of today's passage is a lot like the mood of epiphany, this season that we're in, grave but hopeful. Have you ever thought about the fact that if you were sitting in the first epiphany, so in that time when Jesus was a baby, and if people like the wise men knew kind of who Jesus was because they studied the scriptures, that it was a hopeful time, but really the story hadn't unfolded yet. I mean, Jesus was a baby, a toddler, and they didn't know what to expect or, or, or what. I mean, they knew the prophecies, they knew that somehow this king would come and right all wrongs, but... The funny thing is, as he grew older and especially as, if, if, especially as he eventually went to the cross, you notice that he kept on defying our expectations for who Jesus would be. You know, the season of Epiphany, we could say, is a, is a season of misguided expectations being blown out of the water. And the older I get, probably the older you get too, you realize that Life tends to be full of disappointments and expectations that we've had for where we'd be or what we'd be doing or who we'd be around or who would be with us or who wouldn't be with us. And those expectations all get continually blown out of the water. That feeling, that grave but hopeful feeling is the feeling of epiphany. And I invite you to soak in that feeling with me as we hear the text from Isaiah 43. Because it uses a metaphor for this grave and hopeful mood. It's the metaphor of passing through the waters. In scripture, especially if you read the Psalms, the waters are a metaphor for judgment, for panic, for fear, and for anxiety. And I ask you today, what waters are you passing through this evening, this week? this month, this new year? Is it an illness? Is it a strained relationship? Is it the stress of schoolwork or the pressure of overbearing parents? Is it a secret, dark, besetting sin? Is it a guilty conscience? Is it a heavy heart about the state of our nation and world? Is it a heavy heart about your child or your grandchild? What waters are you passing through today? I was recently talking to a minister friend of mine who was relaying this thing that happened to him not long ago when he was visiting someone in his church who's a shut-in, someone who has the, the physical and medical limitations that doesn't allow them to leave the house. And so he was bringing the communion of the church to this person. And they sat down, he was preparing the communion elements, and he asked him what you'd normally ask, how, you're, how are you doing? 
And the man responded and shared, I'm doing okay, and shared about his family, shared about the state of his medical condition. And eventually, after talking for about 30 minutes, the pastor asked the question that I'm beginning to think that all of us as disciples of Jesus, maybe as cheesy as it feels in our day and age, should be asking one another on a constant basis with sincerity in our hearts, which is, how is your faith doing? And the man paused for a long time, and he began to cry. And he said, well, I don't know if I'm doing too well right now. He said, I mean, uh, I know that I'm dying. I know that death is imminent for me. I don't quite know when it is, but the doctors tell me it's, it's going to happen soon. And I've got all the arrangements for my death in order. I think I'm sort of ready on the practical level. But I'm scared, and I'm afraid. And like any good pastor would and should do, you ask a lot more questions. And so the pastor asked, what are you afraid of? And the man said, after thinking for a little bit, I'm afraid that when I die, I'm going to close my eyes, and it's just going to go dark, and there's going to be nothing on the other side of that. This man was passing through the waters. And Isaiah 43 is God addressing those of us who are passing through the waters. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 3. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now forgive me, we're going to get a little nerdy here and look at the text kind of like a Bible study. Because what we need to observe is that Isaiah 43, 1-7 is a self-contained poem in the greater narrative of Isaiah. And poetry in the Hebrew, it doesn't run exactly like poetry in English. If you've taken your English classes or read any English poetry, I mean, typically, it runs in a linear fashion. You read from beginning to end. You read from left to right. And you read from top to bottom. And at the bottom is the big aha of the poetry. It's sort of driving you to whatever conclusion, whatever sort of revelation or epiphany it's trying to give you. Hebrew poetry doesn't always work like that. But here we have in verses 1 through 7, 13 lines in the Hebrew. And in this particular construction, the way this works, the aha isn't at the end. It's actually in the middle. And what we find is themes being developed from the outside in. It's kind of like a sandwich. We might say that it's sort of like you've got the bread on the outside, and then you've got the condiments headed toward the middle, and then you've got the the awesome turkey, or, you know, Matt's not here tonight, but I want to be vegetarian friendly, but I don't really know what vegetarians put in the middle of their sandwiches. So, like mushrooms or air or something's in the middle there. Well, that's the structure of this Hebrew poem here. And I want to walk through it and look with us at what God is saying to the people who are passing through the waters. First, he's appealing to his creation of you. And second, he's appealing to his redemption 
of you. And I want to observe these two themes in that succession. So look with me at verse 1 and hear the language, hear what God is setting up and what he's saying to you. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And you go to the very end, at the end of verse 7. Whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This isn't just any old language. This is the same language that's being used in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, in Genesis 1 through 3, that talks about God creating the world and God forming and making humanity in his image out of the dust. It's God in the midst of reminding people who are passing through the waters by saying, don't forget I'm the God who made you and who made all this. I'm in charge. I'm sovereign. And I made you. I know you meticulously, inside and out. I'm that God. That's me. That's the one who's addressing you right now. And then we move to the inside. Second half of verse 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. And your mind. This language of redemption, it sounds biblical, but it was first and foremost language about transactions in a marketplace. And when God says, I have redeemed you, he's speaking of buying back what's been taken away from him. That God is offering this word of comfort after saying he's created you, saying, and I'm buying you back from sin, the flesh, and the enemy that has taken you from me. And I've called you by name. I know you individually. And you are mine. In the best of senses, in the best of ways, God's saying, I own you. You belong to me. And I'm calling you back. And we hear this language developed in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Whenever you see in the Bible that word LORD in all caps, it's saying something special. It's God's special name that he gave to his people when he first delivered Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt. It's his covenant name, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. He's saying, I'm that God. And all of a sudden in the Israelite mind and in our mind comes this host of memories of the way God has been faithful to us in our past. Remember, I'm that same God that redeemed you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm that God. And that same God is addressing you tonight who's passing through the waters by saying, remember my past deeds of faithfulness in your life. Remember who I am and what I've done for you in the midst of passing through the waters. Count your many blessings and don't forget that that's me. I'm the one who's talking to you right now. He says in the latter half of verse 3, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. What God is saying is that I, the, the, the ransom and the redemption of you is so thorough and so thought out that I'm telling you the exact currency I'm using with which to buy you back. All the nations that have rebelled against me, I am exchanging them for you. And I'm buying you back. That's how much I care about you. Verse 5. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east 
And from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. He's talking about the four corners of the earth. Wherever you've been scattered, wherever you have wandered, wherever you have found yourself distance from the Lord, God says, I'm in the business of bringing you back and I will do it. I'm redeeming you. I will gather you. This is my work, not your work. And I promise I am faithful to do it. Everyone, he says in verse 7, who is called by my name. Again, his faithfulness. And he's calling you by name. And God says all this as grounding. Grounding to give you the greatest confidence as he repeats these two words. These two words intended to open up our hearts and open up the heart of the one who's passing through the waters. Fear not. You know, there's a big difference between when a mere human tells us to fear not and when the Holy One of Israel tells us to fear not. When my kids were younger and I put them to bed, they would tell me they couldn't sleep and oftentimes it was something like a monster in the closet or a robber in the house, you know, the usual shadowy suspects. And for the most part, my attempts at comfort were ultimately summed up in those same words. Fear not. Hey, don't be afraid. There's no monster in the closet. There's no robber in the house. And if there was, daddy works out really hard, so he's going to be able to subdue this monster. So don't worry. But I could tell even as I made my case that my fear not really rang hollow and that they didn't trust me. And for good reason, I suppose, because they know that daddy is not omniscient. How do I know for certain, for certain that there isn't a monster hiding in the closet? I'm not omnipotent, you know. I'm not omniscient. There, there may be one that just turns invisible every time I turn on the light. That's the things that are going on in the minds of my kids. And if a monster did come out, who's to say that I wouldn't be strong enough to overpower it? And so against these very understandable arguments, I can understand why for my kids, my fear not rings hollow. But it's not the same for God, is it? Because, well, God is God. He is omnipotent. He created you and the rest of this world, and he's the master of every monster. And any waters you're passing through right now, well, he made those waters. If a mere human is telling you to fear not, you have some cause for alarm, maybe a lot of cause for alarm. But when God tells you to fear not, well, There's a lot more freight behind that, isn't there? So hear clearly what God is saying to you tonight, right now. God says, what it means to fear not as you pass through the waters is to simply trust that I am God and that what I say is true. Simply trust that I am God and what I say is true. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In other words, to sum up what we've been saying thus far, God says, because I've created you, because I've redeemed you, don't be afraid. 
And so here we come to the center of the verse, the big aha moments where God reveals the, the core of what he's trying to say to you and to me tonight. Why is it that we need not fear? Why is it that we can rest assured that his word is true? How do we know that God is for us and that God's love is here? It's the first half of verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. God's been speaking like this to his people for many generations now. And it's a strange way of speaking that he began when he first summoned the people out of, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Because if Israel heard this, and as you hear this, it should echo in our minds the great covenant that God made with Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God gives his big reveal of why he chose Israel and why he chose you and why he loves you tonight. And he answers in this way, and all Israel remembers this because it's a little bit peculiar. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, it says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were actually the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Did you catch that? It's circular logic. God is saying, I love you because I love you. I love you because I've chosen to set my affection on you. You see, I didn't look down the corridors of time when you would be created and find in you something pleasing to me. I didn't look for the people that I knew would love me back and choose to set my affection on them. No, I said, I will love you simply because I choose to do it. This is the God who's speaking to you tonight. The God who says, I love you because I love you. It starts with God and it comes from God. And it's not based on you. It's based simply on the character and goodness and fidelity and power and love of God Almighty who says, I love you because I love you. My family and I over Christmas break went up to Chattanooga for one day to visit halfway a friend of ours who we knew from our pastoral days in Denver who now lives in Knoxville and he's planting a church with his wife and his kids. And uh, we spent the evening and the next day with them. The next day we were in, in some taco joint in Chattanooga and we were talking about our families and we actually got on the subject of this idea of God loving us because he loved us. And he was talking about how he was sharing that with his elders and training his leaders in, in this beautiful sort of theological center of why we do what we do in ministry. And he said, I've actually started, and this was with his two-year-old son, Davy, on his, his knee as we're eating together. He said, I've actually started this funny little liturgy or this funny catechism that I use with my kids on a regular basis. And I actually want to try it out right in front of you, Zach. And so he had Davy, who barely speaks English because he's two, uh, answer the these questions. He said, Davy, who loves you? Davy said, Daddy loves me. And Dave said, Why do I love you? And Davy said, 
because I'm yours, Daddy. And Dave said back to him, that's right. I love you simply because you're mine. The God who created you is also redeeming you as you pass through the waters. And he doesn't leave his love to nebulous speculation. We don't have to sort of stay with Oprah with this idea that God's just this random God of love, beaming love towards us. Because his love took definite shape in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God says, I I love you, and I want to demonstrate that love by taking on flesh and by ascending a hill and a cross to die for your sins and to pay for your debt, to ransom you and to buy you back with the currency of his own blood. And then to, in exchange for his perfect record of righteousness, that he would live his entire life before the Father, give it to you and take upon himself your wretchedness, your brokenness, your past, present, and future mistakes and sins and all the things that you'll do to wreck your life. Jesus takes those on the cross. There's the love of God for all to see. And Jesus says to you from the cross tonight, I love you because I love you. Now I left you hanging at the beginning of this sermon with the shut-in man who was passing through the waters, fearful of the nothingness of death. Do you want to know how the minister responded? He told me, after praying silently for wisdom from the Holy Spirit, which, if we're honest, is what we do all the time when we're talking with parishioners about the deep and heavy things of life. He said, I decided that this man didn't need arguments for the metaphysical rationality of heaven. And he didn't need apologetics that argued for the reliability of the scriptures, as good as those things are and as important as those things are. This man needed to hear God's word and needed to hear from God's mouth that God loved him. And so the minister opened to Romans 8 and read the entire chapter to him. And as he read lines like this, the man began crying and the minister began crying too. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And lines like this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him and in him give us all things? And it was as though that scripture reading turned into a beautiful sermon full of all the comforts of God's promises, climaxing in this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And after they sat in tear-filled silence for a while, the man said to the minister, I think I'm going to read Romans 8 every day. 
this man was understanding that what it means to fear not as you pass through the waters is to simply trust that God is God and what he says is true. So brothers and sisters, as you pass through the waters, know this. God is a God who seeks out afraid, downtrodden, and weary people. And he says, mine. I love that one. I love you. He loves you because he loves you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.